Numbers chapter 16, verse 1 is where we are. It says, in the midst of this, now Korah. So this is uh, an individual, but it is his descendants are a tribe. And there are people that follow him and his leadership. And they are part of the tribe of Levi and have been assigned duties by the Lord and by Moses and Aaron in tending to the temple and the movement of the tabernacle, I should say, the tent when it's taken down and packed up and transported to the next location. These men are involved with all of that work. So now to back up and set the stage a little bit, uh, we had these difficult situations with the nation of Israel in previous chapters where they've complained against the Lord, where they refused to obey the Lord, where they listened to the counsel of the ten spies who came back with negative report, rather than the two spies who gave the positive report and then defeated, because at that point the nation decided, well, okay, we messed up and we didn't follow the plans of the Lord and we went and did our own thing, but now we realize it's wrong. So we'll make up for our failures by disobeying God. That's always a smart plan. And they experience defeat. And then the Lord in their mourning uh, gives them these ordinances of worship that we looked at uh, in our last study where he said, when you come into the land, which is a fulfillment of prophecy that the Lord has said for thousands of years, they're going to own and possess this land. Well, he's currently turning them away and saying, you can't enter right now because of your disobedience. There will come a day where you are allowed to go in and experience all the promises of the Lord, and this is how I want you to conduct yourselves in worship when you get there. Remember that in the midst of his putting out all of these ordinances, including capital punishment, one from the nation of Israel disobeyed the Lord and was working on the Sabbath. So right in the midst of correction, there's somebody that decides, I don't need to listen to correction and is disobeying the Lord, the Lord tells them they have to stone him to death. They do. We close the chapter with the statement by God about including the blue tassels and the edges of their robe, Okay, which I pointed out how over time that became them embroidering their lineage from the tribes as a symbol of pride in the hem of their robes. Right, You get to the book of Ruth, and she's asking that Boaz cover her with a hem of his robe, meaning... She's proposing for marriage. Jesus talks about how in the New Testament, the religious leaders broaden the hem of their robes so everyone can see their lineage. Okay, If I could only touch the hem of the robe, the woman said, then I would be healed. In the midst of all of that discussion, Korah rises up right here in verse 1. And he's going to attempt an overthrow of Moses and the leadership of Israel. Now think about how silly that sounds. When, when you go through all that I just sort of recapped quickly there and then think it would spring into your mind in the midst of all of that. They just stoned a guy to death, right? For disobeying the Lord. And Korah suddenly decides, I can lead this whole nation. I can disregard God and his authority, and set myself up in a position that will rule and guide these people. 
Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Iliab, one, uh, or excuse me, and on the son of Peleth, son of Reuben, took men. They rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves. This is Korah and all of his followers speaking to Moses and Aaron. For all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? So <clears throat> I want to start by examining what does it mean to be holy, okay? Because this definition that's given in this setting is to say we're all descendants of Abraham. Therefore, we are all holy is what he's saying. Okay? The term holy and its definition is to say that something or someone is set aside from all other things in order to be used for the purposes of God, this God of the scripture, right? When, for instance, other organizations say, well, we have our holy writings also, okay? You, in fact, do not have holy writings because if they were, then they would pertain to this one and only true living God right here. That's the definition of holy. It's something or someone who's set aside for the singular purpose of fulfilling God's desire and his will. Worship. So to just say, oh, this whole nation is holy. Well, are they presently all obedient to the Lord? I mean, we just saw a guy get stoned to death. We could say that guy wasn't holy. Okay. Right now, a group of people that are all rising up in rebellion to the leadership which has been established by God and saying, we could throw you guys out of here and take over ourselves. Is that group holy? Right? There are some questions to ask when people just start throwing terms around. Because when you start defining things as being a particular way, you discover that mm, one person could mean one thing and another person could mean another thing altogether. We'll go a little further with this discussion, right? Two finely dressed young gentlemen show up at your door wearing white shirts, black pants, got a little black badge on their left pocket. They want to talk to you about the scripture. And their name badge says, right, Elder, and whatever their name is, you know, Joe Schmo, Elder in the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. Okay. Number one. Jesus Christ, start there. The Jesus we worship in this room should be the Jesus that we discover right here in these pages. Nowhere else. You don't get to define Jesus. Jesus defines himself. And according to these scriptures, Jesus is God. Okay, Difficult for some people to grasp. But let's start with the biblical concept. God creates the human race, Adam and Eve, gives them the earth, 
and says, it's yours. He just got to tend to it and care for it. They disobey God and obey Satan. The scripture tells us, Romans 6, verse 16, whom you obey, that's your master. Okay? There's a lengthy explanation there, but that is a good summary that whoever you're obeying, that's your master. They obeyed Lucifer. That made Lucifer the God of this world. That's not my definition. That's not my doctrine. That's Jesus Christ referring to Satan as the God of this world and the God of this age. We are all under the power and sway of Lucifer and his influences on this earth without Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus Christ, then you're a child of God. But the human race is subjected to the authority of Satan until you subject yourself to Jesus Christ. Now, God watches humanity struggle through thousands of years trying to develop and repair their relationship with God through various ways and means. Jesus Christ, being God, becomes a man and enters this earth, lives perfectly, right, until he allows the human race to put him to death. This is important that you follow me through this, that you stay with me in what we're going for, for definition here. Jesus Christ, subjecting himself to our wickedness, allows himself to be killed, and then rises from the dead three days later to show that the power Satan has over the human race, particularly his strongest influence, death, is meaningless to Jesus Christ. Go ahead and throw your worst weapon at me, right? Sin and death. Jesus remains sinless. He experiences death, and he resurrects himself from the dead according to the Scripture. Okay? Switch gears with me to Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormons, who all through his youth openly expressed that he despised Christianity and the Christian church. don't know if you're aware of that. He and his father both. Were reje- they were rejected by the church, and the church was rejected by them. There was massive conflict in all of the communities that they were in. They were thrown out of their communities for bringing fraud and manipulation to the people that were around them. They, they were nearly prosecuted. In the end, Joseph Smith died, I don't know if you're aware of this, in a gun battle with the FBI, the wounds that he received from that. He says, Jesus, right, is not God himself, that God in heaven had a wife, right? God the Father had God the Mother. I'm not making this up. This is Mormon doctrine. They had sexual intimacy together, and she bore children to God the Father. Two of those children, one was named Jesus, the other was named Lucifer, their brothers. And Jesus was asked by God the Father to give God the Father a plan to redeem the human race from their sins. He proposed his plan. Lucifer also proposed his plan, and God preferred God, 
Jesus' plan, so he chose Jesus as the Savior of this world, sent him down here. Lucifer was so angry about his brother being chosen over himself that he began a mission to destroy Jesus' work here on this earth. That's a totally different message. You understand what I'm saying? That's a totally different Jesus. That's a totally different God. That's a totally different circumstance. Things need to be defined by the Scripture, not by our opinions. Not by our experiences. Oh, I've been through life. I've talked to a lot of people. I've been around a lot of different religions. And, you know, this is more how I think of God. I get that from people all the time. This is more, when I think of God, I think of him like this. Really doesn't matter, right? You're sitting there now. I'm standing here, right? I get to know you very deeply and intimately. And now there, I know who you are. Somebody comes along, starts telling me they know you, but they've got an entirely different description of person and where you live and they know something else some other person or they've developed in their mind some of their belief if i know you and you know me no one can contradict who we are here god has come and established moses and aaron as the leadership along comes korah and says i've got a different opinion about all of these circumstances I know this all seems like this is the direction we should be going, but let me just tell you how it really should be. The scripture very clearly defines how all of these things should be laid out, specifically within this setting, Moses and Aaron, also within churches today. I shared with you recently, we were at the pastor's conference last year, and we weren't at the conference, we watched it online. And uh, one of the pastors that was sharing was talking about the research that had been done about church splits and the fact that almost always it's a group of seven or less people that destroy the church. They, they have opinions about the way things should be going, and it, it's wide and varied, you know, the decoration, the way that the church should be painted or the carpets that they should have. They, this group has an entirely different opinion or how the finances should be being spent. Or what should be being preached from the pulpit. The scripture very clearly lays out Jesus Christ, Paul, the apostle, Peter, proclaimed to us in the epistles how church government should be. Pastor, working with elders who have deacons who help serve that entire picture. And the buck stops with the pastor. If it's messed up, it's the pastor. If it's good, it's the pastor. This is scriptural leadership. Uh, don't raise your hands, right? Many of us have come from like denominational backgrounds where everybody gets a vote. Wow, right? I mean, that old saying, if you've got two people, you're bound to have three opinions. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> you're asking for an opportunity for division and trouble in the situation. You know, holy, that is what should be serving the Lord. The person who has said, this is my life, this is my purpose, this is what I'm doing. Christ has chosen me, and I am choosing to obey him and serve him in this manner. Church leadership, you know, congregational leadership, needs to start with the pastor. It starts with Moses right here 
And now the rebellion has begun. So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. This is that same humility we see from him over and over again. And he spoke to Korah and all the company saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy. See, see that right there? I'm not the one defining this. The scripture is. We'll find out tomorrow who's holy, Korah. Who belongs to him and who doesn't. Who's holy and who is not. We'll discover that. And will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all your company. Put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the Lord, or excuse me, that whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. So this accusation has actually gone both directions now, hasn't it? Korah comes and says to Moses, you have taken too much authority upon yourself. You having, you know, the final answer on all subjects isn't right. We should be able to submit our plans and ideas and, you know, methods and means. And you've taken too much upon yourself. And now Moses answers back, in fact, on behalf of God, saying to Korah, there's, I'm adding to it, but I'm giving the definition. He's saying, you were given a role inside the work of the Lord. You were given a ministry to perform Korah. And now, by this act of you trying to move out of that position and take on another position, which in fact belongs to somebody else, you're the one who's taking too much upon yourself. Moses rocks him right back on his heels with, no, no. See, you're right. Somebody has taken too much authority, power, and position recognition upon themselves. It's not me. It's you. And we're going to find out just how this all unfolds is what he's saying. You know, you, you've taken too much upon yourselves. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it a small thing that, you, that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself? to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to serve them and that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi with you? And are you seeking the priesthood also? Your role wasn't enough for you. You decided that you needed to take on someone else's role also. Was it a small thing that God gave you this responsibility of caring for the tabernacle and the movement of the tabernacle. There's something about our hearts that's incredibly wicked. It isn't just my own, you know, self-debasing opinion of the human race or myself. I mean, the scriptures, the prophets tell us, right? The heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? That's our heart. That's a definition of our heart. You know, we, we hear things in commercials and otherwise, you've just got to trust your heart, you know. There's probably a bunch of us in this room that could say, yeah, I've tried that, you know. My heart led me horribly astray. No? 
no, no, uh, no jobs you've regretted, no education that you chose, no, no spouse, no, you know, situation you had to live through that you finally chewed your own arm out of that trap and set yourself free. You put yourself in that situation and it turned into nothing but a snare. Your heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Right? This is why the psalmist has to say, search me and know me. Tell me whether there's any wicked way in me. Why? Because we deceive ourselves. We, we convince ourselves that we're awesome, you know, that we're doing wonderful. We've got to constantly be kept in check. Right? God goes through all of creation, says, oh, that's good. Oh, and that one's good. And oh, that's good. And he makes man and says, that's bad. <clears throat> That he's alone. I'm going to make him a help meet. What's the only thing that Adam's doing at that point? Worshipping God. That's what his whole life is. Is worshipping God. And God says it's not good that this guy is alone in worshipping me. He needs a help meet. Right? If you've thought all along the way, you know, that that was so she could have children and she could, you know, do dishes and she could. No, it was so that he could meet God properly. He needs help within it. Even in how we are created, we need one another. We're not good on our own. Here, God is showing us this whole Lone Ranger attitude about ministry is not biblical. I'm the guy, I'm special. I've got the awesome message, and I'll just head out, and I don't need to be accountable to anybody. And there are a lot of people that do that. I'm the best thing since sliced bread, and here I go. Well, let's see how it turns out. You know, here in these passages and in life, those people that decide for themselves, right? My, my pastor you know, often would say to us as we were in training and studying for the ministry, he said, oh, you want to be very clear, you know, whether you were actually sent out to do ministry or if you just went out to do ministry. Because maybe you don't even realize it and you were kicked out. You want to make sure it was the sent out, not just the gone out or the kicked out. There, there are ways the Lord orchestrates his purpose. Some people assume, yeah, that's it. I'm the guy. I'll take over from here. Moses, we appreciate you and all the years you put in, but, you know, retirement is upon you and you just didn't know it. So if you could step down, not, not how it's going to be here. The Lord is being very clear about who are going to be his own. Is it a small thing you've received all this? Therefore... You and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. You're not, you're not here actually, you know, protesting Moses or trying to overthrow Moses. What you're doing is trying to overthrow the Lord. Why? Because the Lord established Moses. And if the Lord doesn't want Moses there, he'll take Moses out of that situation. He will remove him. Look at verse 12. Moses sent and called Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come up. <clears throat> They're part of the rebellion. They've signed a document or, you know, whatever it is that say we are in agreement with Korah. We're of the same mindset. It's become known 
to the congregation and is uh, and uh, Moses to the point that he's sent inquiry to them. You know, I got a group of rebels here that are telling me they're going to overthrow my priesthood, my brother, and take over. And I hear you're with them. So I would really appreciate it if you came up here and we had a conversation and they said, forget you. You don't have any authority over us. You can send your subpoena. You can send your guards. We're not coming. We're, we're our own people, and we're all done listening to you, Moses. This is a really treacherous place when a body of believers begins to behave like this. You're not coming up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you should keep acting like a prince over us? Yeah, if we've studied Moses carefully to this point, that's not been his mode of operation at all, has it? He hasn't acted like a prince over them. He has led them. He has guided them. He has given them direction. He has given them commandments from the Lord, but he hasn't been a guy that said, build me a palace right over there and fill it full of all of the best goods. And, you know, who is it that's going to be preparing my meals? He hasn't acted like that at all. He has led them and he has made decision, but he has done it under the careful guidance of the Lord, not on the independence of his own merit. You know, notice in that their response contains that same phrase. Is it a small thing? Right? You can almost hear that the gossip chain has been at work. Right? Moses says to Korah, is it a small thing that the Lord has given you all of this great responsibility and then turns his attention to Dathan and Abiram and says, now you guys need to come up here. And their response comes right from Moses' own statement. Is it a small thing? Like they're mocking him. They're using his same words and they're trying to turn it around on you're a failure. You brought us out here and it's just going to be death. Now, keep in mind, all of this shift has probably taken place because they were forbidden from entering the land. They've come out of captivity. They've wandered through the wilderness. They've arrived at the border. They wanted to go in, but they all collectively listened to the ill report of the ten spies, the doubt that was contained in there. And they all said together, we cannot do it. Dathan and Abiram being part of that group that said it's not possible. Joshua and Caleb, the only two that agreed with Moses, that it can be done and it should be done right now. So the fact that they doubt, they are then soundly defeated and they cannot enter the land, they now want to make that Moses' fault. H have you experienced this? Where somebody's attacking you and the very attack that they're pouring out upon you is in fact their own failure you haven't seen it, watch the Democratic Party. No? I think I'm just throwing that in there, right? I mean, what's going on right now with, with the Ukrainian incident, right? Quid pro quo was what was there. We understand that, you know. But attack the president with that and try to impeach him. Why? Because the same character that's leading these people, and I'll just be very blunt, it's Lucifer. 
Satan himself is steering the hearts and minds of these people to rebel against Moses. No, there's a massive amount of death that's about to arrive right here in this story. Following Lucifer produces that death. It's, it's coupled together, one and the same. Democratic Party, you go, oh, this is supposed to be political. We're in church. Guess what? Church is political. Because it's morality we're discussing. Right? I don't know what the current statistic is on abortion. 1.2 million annually by the United States of America. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 56 million since 1973. You understand that all the wars we've ever been involved in as a nation don't even come remotely close to that amount of death. We are a bunch of butchers as a nation, and our children are the victims. You know who this nation is listening to, and you know who the Democratic Party is listening to when you've got that many skull and crossbones behind their platform. They are an organization of death. Oh, the Republicans are corrupt. No doubt. <clears throat> and let's rattle those cages too. We the people, by the people, for the people. Vote, please, vote. Revolution in the voting booth. Take these morals and walk into those platforms and vote a biblical, godly conscience. Please, I'm begging you. Our nation is in so much trouble. It's, it's amazing. <clears throat> Last statistic I read, if pastors in the pulpit, and just so we're clear, just so we're clear, again, it's totally legal and totally proper and totally right that I stand here and do this. It's, it's totally legal above, oh, separation of church and state. That's not true. Do you know that? That's not real. That's something that the left has created in order to silence mouths and preachers and sermons on the right so that they won't support biblical candidates and precepts and voting on this side of the aisle. The best thing the left will ever experience is us rising up to vote in a godly conscience. We will dramatically improve their lives by doing so. It's a scary thing to consider. Just 15% increase in our voting would be landslide victories never seen before in history. That's how many people from our side of the issues stay home and don't vote. In the end, when we see godlessness and wickedness continue and we've got that power in our hands, it falls on us as to who's responsible for what's going on in our nation. Please, do what you can to let godly opinion, moral opinion, be demonstrated. Here, the accusation of Dathan and Abiram is, you brought us out here to kill us. No, no. No, you're the ones that conducted yourself in such a way that we're all going to experience this death. Not Moses. If we had followed Moses, if we had followed Aaron, if we had followed the word of God, these people would not be experiencing any of this. 
It's because they followed the wrong group. They followed the majority opinion. Tragic that that is in the case. You brought us, it's a small thing. You brought us out here to kill us. Verse 14, moreover, you've not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of the, these men? Will we not come up? Are we blind? Is what he's saying. We're looking right at these circumstances. We can see them plain as day. Apparently not. Right? It wasn't Moses that held them back from the land. Jesus warns us, right? The light of the eye, or the light of the body is the eye, meaning spiritually, what can illuminate your heart, soul, and mind comes in through your, your eye or your ear, right? You're hearing the word of God. If you tune your attention away from God's word, then it goes black. And the scripture, Jesus says, if that light becomes darkness, how great is that darkness? It takes over everything. Our thinking goes black, goes sinful, goes dark when we no longer look at God's word. These people are saying, what are you going to do? Put out everybody's eyes? We can see plainly what you've done. No, you can't see plainly what's been done. Yeah, you're looking at the same evidence we are, but in the end, if we look at this accurately, just turn back three pages and read the last three pages. You are the people who are responsible for bringing us to this place and the death we're currently experiencing. And they want to turn it around on Moses and make it his fault. Again, you watching the news lately? You know, are they spray painting on the sign down the road? 200K, right? 200,000 deaths. Right on the Trump sign, blame it on him. Definitely his fault. Right? It's crazy, the stuff that our culture is doing in the way that it will not look. It looks, it looks right at the same evidence you do, and it comes to an entirely different conclusion. Why? Because they're blind. Oh, you, you, don't, you don't expect us to not look at the facts? <laughs> you expect us to not follow science? No, we're following facts and science. That's what we're doing. That's why this church is open today. We're following facts and science. We're not, we're not listening to the fear. We're not listening to the lies. We've gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ to be obedient to the word of God. That's why we're here. They love to blame anyone that they can. Then Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. I haven't taken materially from them, and I've brought no negativity or harm to them. They've experienced harm. They've experienced death. They've experienced painful things that they're presently going through. But Moses is saying, that's not me at all. Most of the congregation is grumbling and complaining in this way. The fact that he says, don't respect their offering, that's a huge deal. Okay? <clears throat> Follow it from a New Testament lens. You have one sacrifice that was performed for you, right? And gives you eternal life. Jesus Christ's death at the cross, right? That's the one sacrifice. What if Moses was here or I'm standing here and I'm praying to the Lord and saying, Lord, don't respect the offering that was made for these people here. That's a heavy duty thing to say. That's what Moses is saying. 
the annual sacrifice, the national sacrifice we all perform together, which removes their guilt from them so that they're not under the shroud of the death penalty for their sinfulness. Don't respect that offering, Lord. This is a huge thing that Moses is praying over these people. Remove the gracious sacrifice that you set in place that would have covered their sins. Do not respect their offering. I haven't done any of what they're saying. I haven't taken from them, nor have I heard anyone. Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they as well as Aaron. Let each take his censer and put incense in it. Each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took his censer, put fire in it. Now, some of us might have come from uh, Greek Orthodox backgrounds, Catholic backgrounds, Russian Orthodox backgrounds, where the priest has that censer, metal box, open it up, you know, light incense, set it in there, or have fire in there and set the incense in it, and then they, they wave that and fill the atmosphere with the fragrance of the incense that's burning. Little different here. Take a mound of coals and heap it onto the bowl or tray, and then finely beaten incense that's flake or nearly powder, large amount of that, and just toss it on top of that. That erupts into a cloud of smoke, and the whole atmosphere is instantly just haze filled, sweet smelling aroma. But that symbolizes that the prayers of the saints are ascending to heaven to God. Both in the Old Testament sense and the New Testament sense, the book of Revelation, we are told that the incense and the smoke that rises symbolizes the prayers of the saints. So come with an attitude of prayer, is what Moses is saying. And we're going to discover whose prayers God is accepting. All of our smoke will rise together and we'll watch and see whose prayers are being received by God. Now you could look at that and think, well, that was kind of a weird thing. I wonder how that whole showdown's going to occur. You know, incense burners at noon. I don't know. Stand in the you know, main street and have the showdown between those that are the servants of God and those that think they are the servants of God. So, uh, let's see, put the fire, laid in the incense, and stood the door of the tabernacle, so back up, let each uh, take his censer, verse 17, put incense in it, each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer, so every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. So, all the congregation. We don't know to what degree that means. Uh, all of the congregation is aware. You're talking about a minimum at this point of somewhere around 4 million people. Okay, So, this is not you know, 150 movie extras that have all gathered around for Hollywood to make a film about. This is a throng of people. 
that have gathered up because they don't know how the leadership is going to turn out for Israel by the end of today, right? Are we going to be following the mandate of Moses and the Lord and all we've gone through so far? Or is Korah of the mindset that he's the new leader and we're all headed back to Egypt, right? Because that was the last outcry is let us select for ourselves a leader from amongst ourselves and we will appoint him head over ourselves and he will lead us back to Egypt. Back to bondage. Sounds like a good idea, right? Now they've gathered together. To whatever degree, they've thronged around Moses and Aaron and they want to see what's going on. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. There's your answer. You might want to step back a few feet, Moses. <clears throat> because I'm about to wipe out this entire congregation of people. Then they fell on their faces and said, Oh God, the God of the spirit of all flesh, Shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation, saying, get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Oh, I don't want to wipe out the whole congregation. But Korah called for everybody to gather together, and they all listened to Korah and gathered together as a congregation. Right? It says that they gathered with Korah as a congregation. So it's literally Moses and Aaron against the entire nation. Remember that. Because if you're the sole voice of reason and everyone's speaking against you, that doesn't mean you're wrong. Just because you're the only person that's saying the thing that's right. The entire nation may gather against you. Right? In the end, what's that Old Testament occurrence? Micaiah, Ahab, and Jehoshaphat preparing to go to war. And, you know, the false prophet has horns made of iron, and he's got 500 false prophets with him. And then you got Micaiah that comes out and he speaks the truth on behalf of God, saying the exact opposite thing that all the false prophets. 500 to 1, those are godly odds. Right? When the whole nation's against you, those are godly odds. This is the way the Lord works, right? One shepherd boy against a giant from the Philistines and all of their army. Those are godly odds. 300 men that are scared cowards join Gideon and defeat countless millions of the Midianite army. These are godly odds. That take place. You want to watch for them even in modern day. Here, whole congregation, the Lord is now saying, okay, we do need to thin the crowd. Let's have it be that everybody who is still of the heart and mind to follow after Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, you guys go stand over there and hang out with them. Everybody else, get away from them. Moses rose, it says, our back fell on his face. The Lord spoke. Speak to the congregation, verse 25, Moses rose, went to Dathan and Abiram. The elders of Israel followed him. He spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, 
lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives and their sons and their little children. And Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. For I have not done them of my own will. If the men die naturally, like all men, these men rather, verse 29, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent them. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit. That's a horrifying thought for me. Then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. They haven't rejected Moses. They have rejected the Lord, and that's what caused them to then subsequently reject Moses. Because their hearts and minds are not aligned with the Lord nor his word of God. So when it comes to Moses, obviously, you reject that messenger also. You can very much feel like someone's rejecting you. You need to be able to discern when they are rejecting the Lord and you're just in the path of receiving that anger also. Verse 31. Now it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah, with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. And all the children of Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. There's a partial confession there in that they know they deserve it, right? You don't see that panic coming from the likes of Moses and Aaron. The people's hearts were moved by the rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, and they know the power of Moses, and they've got a fear, and they move away from these people. The ground opens up and swallows them, and they suddenly are struck with the fear of themselves. This is very common when the power of the Lord works in a group and in a, uh, you know, a body of believers. You remember uh, that you have uh, Ananias and Sapphira early on in the book of Acts, and they've watched right as individuals have sold their property and taken the whole sum of money and given it to Peter and the apostles. So Ananias and Sapphira want the spiritual recognition that those people receive. So they quietly sell a piece of property, put a big chunk of the finances away for themselves, and then bring a substantial sum of money. But they lie as they deliver it. And they say, we sold a piece of property and we brought the whole sum here to give to you. And the Lord strikes Ananias dead there in a moment. And a short while later, his wife Sapphira comes in and Peter says, that piece of property you sold and the sum of money you brought in here, 
Was that the whole sum for the property? And she says, yes, it was, continuing with the lie and the deception. And Peter says that the, the men who just buried your husband are walking through the door, and they're going to bury you also, and she dies. Now, here's the thing, you guys. It says great fear came upon the whole church at that time. And you would think so, right? Because everyone would recognize the similarities in the behavior of Ananias and Sapphira and themselves, okay? <clears throat> Which was, above anything else, hypocrisy. And the Lord is showing the church through them hypocrisy is deadly. You can guarantee, right, that if the Lord was still doing that stuff today, hear me correctly, if he was still striking people dead physically like that for the hypocrisy, two things would be going on. One, churches would be a lot smaller from death <laughs> and fear. Right? How could you make it through a single song service? Right? Lord, I give you my all. Really? <laughs> okay, let's not even talk about money. I mean, are you giving the Lord your all? I'm not trying to pour undo uh, criticism on you. What I'm saying is, you see an occasion like this, you now understand how serious the Lord is. If you follow in similar behavior, you're going to experience similar things. I've watched people conduct themselves and things like this, and they die spiritually in the moment. And it takes time for everybody around them to realize, oh, they were incorrect. And they've perished spiritually. Things around them are decomposing and falling apart. It's a heartbreaking thing. What I want to point you to is these types of interactions with God and his people still go on to this day. And it's for our benefit. It's for our benefit. These people need to follow Moses and Aaron, right, to get all of the children of Israel back to the Jordan River some 30 years from this point in history so that they'll be capable of crossing into the land and experiencing God's promises. If at this point they reject Moses and they follow after Korah, it's going to mean spiritual, perhaps physical death for everyone that's involved. It needs to be that God's leadership is shown to the people that they can see plainly who they're supposed to follow. This is actually a very gracious thing that the Lord is doing amongst the nation of Israel and for us today. It's a treacherous thing to rise up against the leadership that God has put you under. Moses has pleaded. They've all pulled away, ground split apart, the earth open, swallowed everyone. Look at verse 36, then Moses or excuse me, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 37, tell Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, to pick up the censers out of the blaze, for they are holy. The censers are holy. Notice that? Think about this for a second. <clears throat> you got all these guys. They've got a censer in their hand. And they've come to worship and minister before the Lord. And the ground has just opened up and swallowed everybody. But they had to drop their censers in such a place that they didn't get swallowed up with everybody. 
is a clear indication that this office, this role, this article, this censer for incense was intended by God. And someone should be holding the censer right now and worshiping the Lord with it. But he's gone. They're gone. The job is still in place, still needed. God made sure, right? I mean, it's interesting to me that the censers weren't swallowed up. That they didn't lose any of the articles of worship in the process. Why? Because God wants that to go on. He wants it to continue. He's going to make it a sign to them here. Eliezer is, uh, you know, amongst the priests, takes the censers of these men who sinned against their own soul. Let them be made into hammered plates. They're, they're already hammered uh, into what they are as censers, but they're going to become a covering for the altar because they presented them before the Lord. Therefore, they are holy, and they shall be a sign to the children of Israel. So Eliezer the priest took the bronze censer, which those were burned up, had presented, and they hammered out as a covering uh, on the altar to be a memorial to the children of Israel that no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he might not become like Korah and his companions, just as the Lord had said to him through Moses, you take too much upon yourself. You've been given a role. Do the job that was given to you to do. Whenever we're setting our sights on somebody else's role and somebody else's job, we're in big trouble. I was 20 years old and uh, really anxious to get into the ministry and just doing everything I could, studying and working in the church, and uh, was really frustrated because I wasn't where I thought I should be. And my pastor took me aside and said, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. You have a ministry right now, and a big part of it is pumping gas. Show up on time, be faithful to your employer, and share the gospel with everyone that you can. And for a couple of days, I looked down on that role. And I spent time in prayer and in the Word about that. And then I embraced that idea of, oh, okay, I got stuff to learn. This is where God has got me. I'm pumping gas, you know, Bangor and in Brewer, two gas stations, and just sharing the gospel. I was astonished to look back years later and realize there are half a dozen men at those two locations who were in college, teenagers that I was sharing the gospel with constantly, that their families are in churches in Bangor and Brewer, you know, here locally in the area. Some of it based upon the fact that I was constantly sharing the gospel with them. You know, there was an occasion, 4.30 in the morning, as I'm opening up the station and I've got my Bible laid out and my concordance and my coffee. Because all I'm going to have to do is pump gas a few times, you know, until around 8 o'clock when other employees start showing up. So I'm just doing my job and studying the Word. And a woman walks through the door and she's from the Jehovah's Witnesses and wants to give me literature. And I say, well... Interesting, 
Because I was just reading this passage, my Bible's laying open, in Hebrews, and I was blown away to read that God the Father refers to God the Son as God the Father. And she said, what? I said, oh, come over here and look at this. And she steps over to the counter, and we read it together. And she says, I've never seen that in all of my life. Been a Jehovah's Witness all my life. And my Christian aunt has been preaching to me all week about how I need to leave the Jehovah's Witnesses and become a Christian. And I say, well, given that conversation and what you just read here, do you want to become a Christian? And she said, absolutely. How do I do that? You know, softball, just knock it right out of the park. And we prayed. And then she said, you know what? Two things are going to happen. I'm going to get back in the car, and those people that are in the car are going to want to know how much literature I've given you because I've stood there and talked to her for almost 10 minutes. I said, well, could you leave it all with me? I said, I do have to tell you I'm going to destroy it. And she's now taking it out saying, oh, no, that would be better. She gives me all of her literature, and then she says, my second problem is when I get back in that car, they're going to want to know about what I prayed with you about. I said, it's none of their business. And she said, you're right. It is none of their business. I said, you need to get them to take you home or to your aunt's house, and you need to spend the rest of the day learning from your aunt how to be a Christian. And she said, that's what I'm going to do. She stopped in months later and told me she was still walking with the Lord and still in fellowship with her aunt. The stark realization of, hey, this is my ministry, right? I can't be there at Daigle Oil Company saying, hey, you want to come to church? You want to come to church? You want to come? You know, and not sharing any gospel with them. Because how many of them am I going to get to where they're hearing the same thing I'm hearing? I've got to take what I've heard and I've got to bring it out to the workplace and share it with the world. You have a ministry. You have a ministry, right? We can't just pick this church up and walk down to Jackson Lab and even if we all put our masks on, walk in and just start preaching. They're not going to let us in. But they let a few of you guys in. You're just undercover agents in those locations. And you're, you're preaching a message that, you know, is culminated with the witness relocation program where Christ returns and takes his church. You need to be the minister God has called you to be. If he moves you into some other area of ministry, praise God. But where you are, you need to serve. The censors beaten into a covering, heated and hammered, to create a cover that when you walk up on it, you're going to see distinct circular patterns properly that have been molded and hammered and welded together with heat to become one plated cover. And it's going to stand as a reminder. This cover used to represent hundreds of people that served the Lord. And in their rebellion, not only did they lose their ministry and their opportunity to serve, they lost their very lives. There's a gravity involved in what the Lord is saying about who he has ordained and who he has put to work. On the next day, all the congregation of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. These people are silly. 
You've killed the people of the Lord. Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting. Suddenly the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord appeared and Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. These guys are constantly interceding on behalf of the people that they minister. God is angry continuously with their rebellion. And how, notice this, notice this. Their rebellion and their complaining. God is really upset with rebellion and complaining. And here we're now seeing, as I mentioned before, that many of these people were actually in their hearts and minds, at least on board to some degree with Korah and all of these others. Because now that they've been wiped out, the congregation complains about the fact that they're missing. They have an attachment to them that is stronger than their attachment to the Lord. So Moses said to Aaron, take the censers and put fire in it in the altar, put incense in it, take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Literally, people are dying in the congregation. Then Aaron took it, as Moses commanded, ran into the midst of the assembly, and already the plague had begun among the people. So he put the incense and made atonement, put in the incense and made atonement for the people. He stood between the dead and the living, so the plague was stopped. Those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. So Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, for the plague was stopped. 14,700 people wiped out. Again, you can look at that and think, God is a wrathful, judgmental God that would do this. Once again... If they follow these people and the teachings that were originally Korah's teachings of rebellion, it's going to kill all of them. They're all going to die in the process. God is making an example of those who are infecting his congregation of believers. He's shutting their mouths. You want to talk like that? You want to think like that? You want to have that behavior? done. My first roles in ministry were as a youth pastor. And the group of teens that I got in the beginning, 30 some odd students, uh, there had not been a youth group in that church previously. So I started the youth group. And you throw 30 some odd teens together and right away, you can have some pretty raucous occasions of chaos. And it got to the point where Bible study was difficult because there was so much disruption early on. And uh, I went to my pastor with one verse, and it said, Cast out the mocker and striving ceases. <laughs> So can I throw out the people that are causing me problems? And he said, yeah, without question. We'll deal with the parental aftermath afterwards. So the deacons were made aware. So they would be standing 
in the hallway outside and downstairs. And when the problem started, I try to control it and ask for order. And then I would just say, get out. And it was the first occasions of having a youth group and having the chaos and now having a guy that says, get out. So they didn't know what to do with that. And I had to get pretty stern and say, no, seriously, it's all over. Get out. We had no more problems. Rest of that study. Next week, somebody else starts in, starts causing, causing problems. I said, remember last week? Threw somebody out? And they're like, yeah. I said, you can get out. They were astonished. How can this be? You just throw people out? Yeah. We're here to have a Bible study. If you're just going to be chaos in the midst of that and unruly, we don't need you here. I didn't have any problems after that. Had one of those students come back. They weren't there a week. Started causing problems. I said, get out. Do you know who my parents are? Yeah, we've already had that conversation. You can go. No problems. Throwing out the problems. Church doesn't like to do that. Why? Because they look at it through the lens of the offerings. Okay? I'm not talking about not having questions. I'm talking about those who would literally create division in the body of Christ, right? That's what these guys are doing. They are dividing the body of Israel to where they cannot function, creating rebellion towards the leadership that God has put over them. Six things the Lord hates, right? Seven are abomination to him. One who sows discord amongst the brethren. An abomination. No. No? I'll give you a main definition of abomination. You're driving down the road, and you see something in the middle of the road. And you can't decide if that's part of a tire or a, just as it passes you. You get an eyeful of roadkill that is so mangled, you rip your head away. And you're thinking, how stupid am I? Why did I even look? Now I'm going to have to live with that memory. Okay, listen, I'm not just doing that to be graphic. That's what the Lord is saying about abomination. Abomination is something that is so hideous that upon your looking at it, you would wrench your eyes away and not want to have any glimpse of it ever again. Six things. Yes, seven are an abomination to the Lord. One is those who would sow discord amongst the brethren. Division in the body of Christ. Be very careful. Be very careful. Maybe you're not a person that would ever do that. But would you listen to it? Somebody else complaining and talking and sowing discord? That's an abomination. If your heavenly father would be repulsed by that, you're a child of that heavenly father. You should be repulsed by that. Stop that discussion. Don't let people sow discord. Very, very dangerous for the body of Christ. How do I know? God just allowed a whole bunch of people to be killed over it. Apparently, God takes it very serious. To stand as an example for us. Guard your heart. Check your heart. If the Lord is showing you, maybe you're a person who looks around, notices. Maybe you need to be in a different place spiritually or even a different place 
physically in order to let the Lord minister to you. If God is this opposed to this level of division, then my heart needs to be perfectly aligned with that same thing. Amen? Let the Lord minister to you. We'll pick up in the next chapter next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father, we are so grateful for your love, your grace, your mercy. We ask that you would help us to be obedient men and women that would follow you and the work you're doing in our lives. We thank you for this congregation, the fellowship we have together. We ask that you would bless it, keep it, nurture it, cause it to grow in numbers and in strength that we would support one another, care for one another, minister to one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.